my name is Kristen Smith, and welcome to the Site Black Women podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Caritha Mitchell. Caritha Mitchell is a literary historian, cultural critic, and associate professor of English at Ohio State University. She is author of Living with Lynching, African-American Lynching Plays, Performance, and Citizenship, which won book awards from the American Theater and Drama Society and from the Society for the Study of American Women Writers. She is editor of the Broadview edition of Frances Harper's 1892 novel, Iola Leroy, and her articles include James Baldwin, Performance Theorist, Sings the Blues for Mr. Charlie, published by American Quarterly, and Love in Action, which appeared in Callaloo and draws parallels between lynching and violence against LGBTQ communities. Her second monograph, From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture, was published in August 2020 by the University of Illinois Press. Her commentary has appeared in outlets such as CNN, Good Morning America, The Huffington Post, NBC News, PBS NewsHour, and NPR's Morning Edition. You can follow her on Twitter at Prof. Corey. So welcome, Dr. Mitchell. How are you? I'm so excited to have you on the program today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I listen all the time, so it's really an honor to be on. No, I think, I, you know, it's it's one of those things where you were one of the early people who really started to support the project with Sight Black Women. And I've always appreciated all of your support. We we are Ford fellows together. And so that's a yeah. that has a warm place in my heart always, my 40s. And so it's nice to be able to have <laughs> you on the program today. Yes. And I'm wearing my my T-shirt, even though people can't see it, but I'm wearing it. <laughs> You got to send us a selfie. Send us a selfie. We'll add okay. the selfie to, to our Instagram post when we do the when we do the launch for the podcast. Nice. So first, congratulations on your new book. I'm really excited about this new book and it feels very, very timely. So tell us a little bit about your new book and what it's about and what inspired you to write it. Sure. So From Slave Cabins to the White House is really exploring what I call homemade citizenship. But the reason why I think it's so important, as you say, even for a moment right now, is that I really feel like I am offering people a model of how to approach the literature and art of marginalized groups and look at that literature and art through the lens of success rather than through the lens of protest. That is probably the biggest thing I'm interested in. And I just feel like it's an important um, corrective for us because we've all been taught to approach the literature and art of marginalized groups looking for protest and looking for resistance as if that is the totality of our experience. Um, But I think that if we can focus on the different ways that our communities have define success, redefine success, and pursued success, then we can gain some of the insights that we need to deal with what is still very much a violent world, what is still very much a world that um, responds to every achievement we have with aggression, that responds to every assertion we make of our belonging, it responds to that with aggression. (laughs) Like Those things aren't going away. And so I just feel like reading through the lens of achievement may allow us to gather even more tools for our current moment, which is so saturated with both physical and discursive violence. Um, So I guess, you know, to answer the question more fully, um, you know, From Slave Cabins to the White House is examining canonical texts by African-American women. I begin in the slavery era with um, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. That's 1861. In that same chapter, I look at Elizabeth Keckley's Behind the Scenes or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House, reflecting the fact that she was the dressmaker for Abraham Lincoln's uh, wife. And so in that one chapter, we go from slave cabins to the White House. And then I take different canonical texts in each decade and then lead up to Michelle Obama and look at her public persona as First Lady as a performance text, um, taking seriously her decisions about hair, clothes, bodily presentation, how she decorated the White House. And again, saying, okay, if I look at that public persona 
performance text, what does it tell me when I look through the lens of success, when I look through the lens of knowing that she knows that every bit of success she has will inspire aggression from the most common words and deeds that make the United States? There's so much to unpack there. And so I really want to kind of break it down into into some small digestible chunks because it's such a rich text. And, and, and I think that there's so much relevant to what we're going through right now. It seems, it will probably seem to many, a strange thesis that we should not be thinking about the importance of protest in our history, especially right now where protests are so much a part of what the political climate looks like. And so can you just break down why that particular argument is so critical in your assessment? Because I think that it is, it it is such a fundamental part of the book that I really want to make sure that people understand what it is that you're arguing there. Absolutely. And you're so right. It feels counterintuitive in so many ways. But I think the main reason why I'm so invested in it is that I wanted us to have tools to do what we're not typically trained to do. So I know that protest is important and resistance is important. And there is no danger that people will not understand the importance of protest. There's no danger there. So to my mind, what I want us to do is to see the other things that we have in our heritage, right? From other people who have encountered the worst that this country has to offer. Um, We have other tools in our heritage from them. And I think that there have been because we're also trained to look for protest and look for resistance, there is much that we are overlooking. So if I take incidents in the life of a slave girl as an example, part of what's so powerful to me is recognizing that there are some things about what she's doing in that text that we can't see if we're only looking for resistance. And I think the other reason why your question is so crucial is because The other thing that we do is we have a very particular idea about what resistance looks like. And if it doesn't look exactly like a complete resistance to everything that is the United States, then we discount it as being less important, less radical, less something. And what I think we can do is by using the lens of success, we can start to see how much African-American communities in particular have been driven by a debate about success. How do we define it? It has never been a settled question. And so if we're looking through the lens of success, we can start to see some of the nuance of how debated and um, and nuanced our beliefs about success have always been. And so I just want to make sure that we have all the tools <laughs> that we need to navigate this racist, sexist, heterosexist, evil country. Um, so yeah. No, I definitely, I definitely understand that. And I think that it's really important for people to understand the historical genealogy of your argument. Right. And so it's immediately when I think about this new book, I think about Ida B. Wells and I think about Ida B. Wells's thesis around the relationship between reactive white racist violence and black success. And you even cite that in the introduction of the book as well, as you talk about Ida B. Wells and you talk about Du Bois and you mm-hmm. talk about the lineage of the book in um, relationship to the work that they also did. Absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the things that you talk about is this question of know your place aggression. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's very much in line with Wells's legacy. And mm-hmm. so I wanted you to talk about that know your place aggression and how it fits in within the narrative of the thesis that you're trying to lay out in the book. Sure. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. So Wells is unequivocal. She says lynching is increasing with the increasing intelligence of the Negro. And that was a guiding light, in all honesty, for the entire study. And of course, you know, part of the way that I encounter Wells is my first book is called Living with Lynching. And I'm looking at um, lynching plays written before 1930, and Wells very much shaped my understanding of what was going on there. And 
what was clear from those lynching plays is that the authors and the characters in the plays knew that what could turn you into a target for the mob was being successful. You didn't become a target because you were a criminal. It was because you were successful. So having Wells as a guide through that study also meant that I knew that African-Americans living at the height of mob violence knew that they were being targeted for their success. So my question became, if they know this, then is what they're doing protest? No, 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 no. I think we need to reevaluate and see just how reactionary white violence is. So for me, it became, again, like you said, with Wells as my guiding light, that, you know, here we are talking in terms of anti-Blackness, and yet we still act as if anti-Blackness is primary, that anti-Blackness is so primary that I can't do anything in my life but respond to it? No, it's anti-Blackness. That means I'm primary. And white violence is the secondary. White violence is the reaction to the fact that I'm successful in holding on to my humanity, for example, right? In the slavery era, just the fact that you know you're a human and you're not a piece of property is an achievement that white violence does not leave unchecked. So some may hesitate to call that success, but white aggression is certainly calling it a success that it's going to react to, right? So I just want us to have the tools that we need to follow what Wells is showing us, that it is every measure of accomplishment that Black people have in this country, every time they assert the fact that they know they belong, they know they belong and should have certain rights. Every time they assert that knowledge, that is an achievement that white violence wants to put in check. So absolutely, it is about kind of following the um, wisdom that people like Wells had even at the height of mob violence. And, you know, Frankly, I feel like we're living through a time period that feels very similar to the 1890s through 1930 in terms of the, you know, <laughs> the brutality, the bluntness of the racism, the I mean, this country feels like it's determined to repeat the 1890s through 1930, right now. And so it's so important that we have clarity about what people like Wells said, even in the midst of that kind of violence. No, I, I definitely agree. And I think that it's been really interesting to see how these parallels are happening in the wake of the Obama era. And mm -hmm. I definitely think that's not an accident. I mean, it's clear and for many of us, it is apparent mm -hmm. that the current quote unquote president's ire mm -hmm. and vitriol has everything to do with his frustrations regarding President Obama. And Absolutely. it's reactionary, right? It's very reactionary. And here's the thing that's so crucial to me about that is that it's not even exposing Trump so much as it is exposing American culture more generally, right? I end the book with a coda titled From Mom-in-Chief to Predator-in-Chief. And what's important about that is the backlash to having the Obama presidency is that Americans, ordinary Americans, wanted to move us from having a mom-in-chief to having a predator-in-chief. That exposes American culture. That exposes how it is part of American culture to resist, reject, attack every bit of success that marginalized groups have. So Trump is able to question Obama's citizenship make him show transcripts, make it, I mean, all of this show your paper stuff that Trump uses to ride the wave into political power 
is all about the fact that Americans, ordinary Americans, support the idea that, oh, yeah, these people don't know their proper place. Let me put you back in your proper place. And to me, that's what's so important about understanding 63 million Americans voting to move from mom and chief to predator in chief, because it's not just about Trump. It's about the support he has. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I want to go back to the text because I think that it really becomes relevant to the conversation we're having now about how your book ties into our current conversations of politics. And on your first page, you open up um, with the following. You write, with U.S. citizenship built on the denial of Black citizenship, African-Americans' success at asserting that they belong consistently inspires hostility. And yet this reality remains shrouded because Americans ignore the effort expended to erase the accomplishments of non-white populations. Appreciating how profoundly achievement shapes black cultural practices therefore requires some housekeeping. And then I'll put my ellipsis there because I want to skip a part and then go on to this last part of the paragraph. And then you continue to write, the necessary housework begins with acknowledging what actually structures experience in the United States. That structuring mechanism is what I call know your place aggression the flexible dynamic array of forces that answer the achievements of marginalized groups such that their success brings aggression as often as praise. Americans celebrate white men's accomplishments, but any progress by those who are not straight, white, and male is answered with a backlash of violence, both literal and symbolic, both physical and discursive, that essentially says, know your place. Preeth, I want you to talk a little bit about that because I think that there's so much there, um, but particularly what I'm really struck by is your notion of housework. And that is a theme that goes out through the book and and you, you introduce it here, but it's one that's recurring. It also ties into this question of housekeeping. How does this notion of homemade citizenship go together with what you are imagining to be black citizenship? Hmm. Thank you for that. I mean, I think the reason housekeeping first becomes so important is because, again, I think it's about clearing away the debris that obscures what's really happening. Right. So we live in a society that basically suggests that there isn't much happening to oppose the success of marginalized groups. There really isn't much happening. There's a lot of whining by these groups. You know, women act as if all kinds of things are against them. But in fact, there's not a lot against them. Right. That is the lie American culture tells. And I think that the housekeeping comes in to say, no, American culture is designed to act as if it's not putting forth all this effort to oppose marginalized groups, but it's actually putting forth a hell of a lot of effort. And so that to me is part of the reason why housekeeping ends up being important. And I guess the way that you phrase that question also has me thinking about the way that part of the violence that I'm trying to trace in this book is the discursive violence of the erasure of black and brown families from mm-hmm. the American family portrait. There's a way in which this country operates as if it has some kind of family values, but the only people who have those values are white. And so part of what's happening is an erasure of black and brown families from the fact that they exist and that they have just as much, you know, affection for each other as we associate with traditional families. And that erasure is part of the violence I'm trying to give us the tools to see. So for example, when we get to, you know, that famous era of, you know, the 60s and 50s when um the Moynihan report is insisting that, you know, Black families are pathological, Black women are emasculating matriarchs who are not allowing Black men to be the head of household. All of that discourse, I want us to understand that as an aggressive assault on the Black families that conform to the model that the country says it will respect. Now, of course, throughout the book, I'm very clear that you are not 
more worthy of respect because you have this heteronormative nuclear family. But the country claims you are. So part of what the artists in this book are showing us is that they want to expose the violence that's built into a country that says, these are the ways that we respect citizens. But even when you live up to exactly that, we're going to erase you or attack you. And so part of what I want us to understand is that even the idea of, you know, black and brown women can be house slaves or housekeepers, but they're never homemakers. Even that is part of the violence that I need us to understand as a very deliberate violence that is erasing a a basic truth about the level of success that black and brown people are having despite every odd against them. So the other part you you said that I should connect, and I just found this so provocative, and I want to see if I can connect it. <laughs> um, so you're saying, okay, so know your place aggression. How does that relate to this idea of homemade citizenship? And I think that's such a beautiful question because for me, homemade citizenship is, you know, this powerful sense of success and belonging that also requires pursuing that success and belonging, knowing that you do so in a violent environment, knowing that you do so in an environment that actually opposes your every attempt at success and a sense of belonging. You don't have homemade citizenship without that awareness of know your place aggression. It's understanding that your every achievement will inspire aggression as often as praise. It's that awareness that produces homemade citizenship. And so to me, what it allows me to do is have us recognize that what I'm tracing with homemade citizenship isn't something that can map on neatly to U.S. citizenship at all, because it really is about belonging and knowing that U.S. citizenship is built on your being excluded from a sense of belonging in the first place. So for me, homemade citizenship allows us to get to something that is more dynamic um, than some kind of attachment to the nation. It is more about the belonging that you create when you care enough about your connections to community to debate about what your success looks like in an environment that opposes your success at every turn. And I think that Black people have been debating what success looks like, how you even know if you've achieved when everything you do is opposed in this country. Like, how do we even agree or disagree about what achievement even looks like? And I believe that we have been debating that with each other Throughout our history in this country, we continue to debate it right now. And that debate is part of what makes us a community. I call debate an embodied practice of belonging. I know I belong to this community because I care enough to debate you about it. That's really, really beautiful. And I want to bring out for our listeners a quote, um, again, from your new book. This is from page three, where you you talk a little bit about homemade citizenship and you say homemade citizenship is a deep sense of success and belonging that does not depend on civic inclusion or mainstream recognition. And I think that that helps us to really understand how, despite the fact that it seems as if many of African-Americans historical appeals to citizenship have been built on a respectability politics Mm -hmm. in actuality how we are defining our citizenship and ourselves is dynamic and is by design in opposition to being pulled into the mainstream I think that that's really beautiful well and it's so important because How can we look at our ancestors and say that they were simply about, you know, white approval and civic inclusion when they knew damn well that any time they achieved anything that looked like what white people valued, any time they got any of that, they were going to be attacked. So given that Black people have known this for so long, that's the reason why I can't get down with this assumption that all we're doing is buying into, you know, 
mainstream American ideas about anything when it comes to the American dream. When you're looking at own your own home campaigns in the 50s and 60s, well, really beginning in the 30s, do I really believe the only black people who wanted to be in the suburbs were black people who believed the hype and believed in the American dream? There has to be something else going on there because you know that when you achieve that suburban home, you're probably going to be attacked. So it has to be about something other than civic inclusion. And again, for me, homemade citizenship is only possible when you know that your success beckons the mob, when you know that your success will draw aggression as often as praise, that's when you have something that can go beyond U.S. citizenship. Because U.S. citizenship itself is based on your exclusion. The other thing I think is so important about the way that you've had us kind of pause on this moment is The truth, too, is if it were just about U.S. citizenship, then that would mean that the only thing that Black people are doing is also being settler colonialists. And there's no denying that some people buy into the logics of settler colonialism. But if we left what we think Black citizenship is about, if we left it to this idea that it's just about belonging to U.S. citizenship, then that really is all we're left with. And so to my mind, what homemade citizenship allows us to do is recognize both the way that our modes of surviving and thriving have been part of settler colonialism, but also something more than that. For me, homemade citizenship allows you to have the room to acknowledge both. It's not ignoring right, the ways that some of the people who are making these debates about what success is, there's some buying into all kinds of things. But there's also something else going on because, again, it is a debate at every single turn. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I want us to come back to this point a little bit later. But before we do that, I want to get into some of the dimensions of the book that I think are really quite inspiring. And I think that one of the things, obviously, since this is the Sight Black Women podcast, one of the things I'm very inspired by from this book are the ways that Black women are the narrative. I mean, Black Mm -hmm. women are the core of your discussion. And so I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. How is it that we get to the point where we tell the story of Black citizenship through Black women? Why do you feel like that is a particularly important thing to do? Oh, thank you so much. That's, oh, that's beautiful. Um, It absolutely is about the fact that I'm tracing homemade citizenship by understanding that it's pursuing success and belonging, knowing that you do so in an environment that will attack your every achievement. And the people who know that best are people who are marginalized in more than one way, right? Kimberly Crenshaw has taught us that when you look at people who are living at the intersection of more than one oppression, then you will gain insight that helps you understand the experiences of people who are living at intersections with less traffic. So for me to have Black women guide me through this journey is to see what are the strategies of perseverance, right? And I speak of it in terms of the strategies of perseverance, because again, it's not about resistance. It's not about protest. It's about how do I continue to pursue my goals, my definitions of success, despite the fact that I know I'm going to be attacked at every turn. So when you look at Black women who are dealing with both the violence of racism and the violence of sexism, then that is a rich place to look for these strategies of perseverance. And it can only help us see those strategies of perseverance when we look at other groups who might experience even more violence, right? So LGBT communities, um, women of color who are also also lesbian, women of color who are also um, living with disabilities. I believe that when we look at Black women, it opens the door for us to understand all kinds of other intersections. And so absolutely, it was that awareness that violence is going to step in at every turn that meant that if I followed Black women, I would see what their strategies of perseverance were. 
And I think the other thing maybe I should add here is that the other thing that I think I was trying to do, again, because I acknowledge this is just, um, you know, a series of case studies, right, that I could trace homemade citizenship by looking at a whole different slate of texts. I could look at, you know, texts that really highlight queer intimacies, for example. Like there are a whole host of ways that I could trace homemade citizenship. But one of the things that I wanted to do was not only look at um, Black women's texts, but also look at Black women's texts that enjoyed um, canonical status in various ways, right? Whether it was the canonical status in terms of how often they're read or how often they're taught or just the exposure of like a Michelle Obama as a performance text, right? There's a certain kind of way in which looking at canonical text, well-read text is another way of getting at the question of success. And so that was the other thing that shaped following these particular artists. I think that's so important. You mentioned this question of perseverance, and I'm hoping that you might be able to share one or two stories from the book from the material and the case studies that you analyze that you feel really help for folk to understand what you mean by the perseverance that Black women um, pursue or the Black women are able to live in order to create this homemade citizenship. Can you tell us a, a story or story or two about that? That's beautiful. Yes. Um, so for me, an important story is Harriet Jacobs and incidents in the life of a slave girl. And of course she offers her life story um, as a novelized autobiography. She is offering herself as the character, Linda Brent. So, okay. What's very clear to me is that Jacobs shows us Linda Brent having different definitions of success. First, she associates it with her aunt Martha, who has a home of her own and, you know, was able to make extra money that allowed her to buy her freedom and so on. But she couldn't buy the freedom of her relatives. But as a young child, Linda sees this as domestic success. There comes another moment when, um, you know, Linda falls in love with a free Black man, and she defines domestic success as being able to be a free mother and wife. She is working to make sure that that free man can buy her freedom so that they can get married. And Dr. Flint makes it very clear that that is not going to happen. I would shoot him like I would a dog if he ever comes around here again. The text then shows us a very clear pivot point, but we only see it if we're reading through success, okay? But when we're reading through success, we see that Linda says to herself, okay, I'm not gonna ever be able to be this wife and mother that can be respectable. I'm gonna tell him, even though I love him and it breaks my heart, I'm gonna tell him to leave me and forget me. And when she does that, she's redefining success for herself. She knows that the reason Dr. Flynn is attacking her is because she had the success of holding on to her humanity enough to know she's more than property, to cultivate affection to the point of love. Those are all achievements. Because those are achievements, they're attacked by Dr. Flynn. She knows that. And she says, okay, there's a defeat here, but there's also a victory. I'm going to redefine what I believe success is. And then we see her go forward on that journey. And I guess the thing that I'll say again for me about why this is such an example of strategies of perseverance is that the way Jacobs ends Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl is basically to say she still doesn't have a home of her own. And she still wants it for her children more than for herself. And what I argue is that that, again, is another strategy of perseverance, whereby she has had to deal with the defeats in slavery that made her value her children more than her own romantic love choice. The things she had to do were about, I can't have a home that's based on my own romantic love choice. But I can have a home that's based on blood with my children. I'm going to define success in a way that deals with the fact 
that my own romantic love choice is even more attacked than my affection for my children. And so for me, that's a strategy of perseverance. It's like, what do I have to do to keep marching toward accomplishment? Because when Dr. Flint does everything he does, she doesn't just say, okay, I'm resigned to failure now. Let me just stop pursuing success. No, she just redefines what success will be for her. That's so important. I think that that, you know, it really kind of hones in on um, the very uh, micro dimensions of success that you're measuring here. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an important thing for our, for our readers to really recognize, because I think a lot of times when we think of success, especially now in 2020, success for us looks big. Right. Mm -hmm. Is money making is being famous. I mean, especially when people are kind of in the social media world and in the in the celebrity world, people think that success has to be having all of the things that society says we should have. But in actuality, one of the things that you're arguing is that we're defining success at every turn based on our needs. And based on our desires for happiness, right? Yeah. And another story about strategies of perseverance to me later in the book would be the way that I look at Setha in Beloved. Because part of what you find when you read through the lens of success is that Setha is doing a lot of work to define and redefine success for herself. And what we see her do is think about. Um, whether she can have both love for a romantic partner of her choice and love for her children. And she's not completely convinced that she can define success in that way. And what Morrison does is show us the journey she takes to think through um, whether she can or can't and what's against her and what's not. And to my mind, part of what Morrison does as a result is show us the perseverance of Black women in terms of making part of the conversation in their communities include them. When the Black community at that time is thinking in terms of Alex Haley's roots and, you know, roots is kind of making black women secondary to support black men. And that is the way that we will have racial success when black men are doing that. And the community conversation is doing that black women are coming in and saying, okay, as a community, are we defining success in a way that obliterates my own desires, that obliterates my goals? Like how can our community conversation take into account Black women's definitions of success? And it feels to me like that's the other strategy of perseverance that we see happening is that Black women are claiming space for their definitions in the community's goals. Absolutely. I think that's that's absolutely the case. And, I, you know, I love Toni Morrison. So I'm really glad that you brought in um, Beloved is one of my favorite books. And so I think that that helps to, to really, at least for me, it helps me to really see the complexities of what you're talking about as well, because Setha is such um, such a complex figure. Right. Mm -hmm. And one that I, we would not frame as absolutely happy. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not a happy novel. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. um, but yet and still what you're saying is that we can see success within that narrative. I think that's beautiful and fascinating. There's an element of your work that I want to make sure that we talk about because I know that it's going to be on many of our listeners' minds. And that's the, the constant theme of sexuality that is throughout all of the theses in, in the book and the text. I mean, anytime we talk about domesticity and we talk about slavery then we must talk about sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. All of these moments are being framed um, through either autonomous sexuality or through sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's on people's minds. And I also think that one of the things that you're careful to do is to recognize the ways that discourses of domesticity often fall back on tropes of heteronormativity. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to talk about sexuality a little bit and particularly um, how your book is in conversation with black women's sexuality, but also attentive to the complexities of sexuality and the problematics of heteronormativity. Sure. Thank you for that. Um, 
Yeah, I think that throughout the study, part of what we find, and this is related to what I just said about, um, you know, Morrison making sure that at a time when the community is kind of rallying around um, Haley's roots, that Morrison is complicating how our communities are defining success, is that throughout the text, I'm encountering women artists and and writers who are insisting upon the way that the definition of success in their homes and in their communities are so caught up in heteronormativity and you know the male head of household and his right to be head of household are so caught up in you know having a respectable picture that there's a certain amount of crushing <laughs> of black women's own goals and so one way that this comes out really starkly for me is in the chapter where I look at Nella Larson's quicksand and Zora Neale Hurston's their eyes are watching God and part of what I find is that these are authors who are insisting that race motherhood, the idea that we can best serve the race by being mothers who care more about everyone else's um, lives and happiness and pleasure than we care about our own, that that's the way to be a proper Black woman. And these texts are very much calling that into question. And indeed, I think part of what they do is they literally take Seriously, part of what the United States is trying to take from Black women when it attacks them for any measure of success they have is the idea even that their pleasure should matter. And so you cast Black women as people who can't be raped. They are natural whores. And part of what this does is it makes even mobility dangerous for them. And part of what I trace is the way that if Black women take even the pleasure of travel, that is something that's going to be opposed. And we can't see that mobility as detached from the sexual violence that this country is giving them, not only in terms of physical violence, but also in discursive violence of casting them as whores, literally no matter what they do. So it feels to me like reclaiming pleasure is one of the things that happens when we follow Black women's definitions and redefinitions and pursuit of success, is that you'll see the moments when pleasure is part of how they define success. And when they include that in their definition, it will invite even more violence to them. That was a perfect answer. And it was funny because when you talked about pleasure and travel, I immediately thought about Lovecraft Country. I don't know how many people watch Lovecraft Country, but I'm a fan. I'm a black side. Me too. Black sci-fi <laughs> and black horror. And so this is my guilty pleasure is Lovecraft Country. And I think about travel as pleasure. And it's really one of the first, um, at least TV series that I've seen that posits black women's travel um, in relationship to, to, to pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's what I immediately thought about when, when I heard you say that. And that was, I think that that really does sum things up. I want to kind of close with one question that I think is on everybody's mind um, and then open it up for you to be able to, to, to talk about anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about so far. But the question or the last question that I have, last formal question that I have is really regarding where we are now in our history again. And and I said I was going to come back to that. And I really want to, because I think for those of us who have studied closely the history of lynching in this country, we cannot help but realize how we are living in a moment that feels so much like the new Nadir, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it was Naliway Rooks that wrote a few years back about us being in the new Nadir. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want you to talk about that because, you know, your first book looked at Black folk and Black women in particular um, writing amidst the, the realities of lynching. And lynching is very much a specter in your new book as well, particularly in your conversations around the the iconography of lynching and Obama, right? Mm -hmm. And I want you to talk about that because we are at a really scary moment in our history. Um, One where just the other day, the current president 
basically refused to denounce white supremacy Mm -hmm. and to most people's perception actually endorsed white supremacy. Yeah. Um, And it feels like the specter of racial violence and the shadow of racial violence is just growing and expanding. And so I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on where we are right now and what the Black women authors who you analyze and engage with, what might they say to us at this juncture? That goes to the heart, doesn't it? Um, Because that question is exactly the question that I ask myself every day. Um, I, I absolutely believe that we are at that new nadir. And I guess what I've been doing is saying to myself, reminding myself whenever despair gets seductive as it often does, that I can't afford despair, as Baldwin said. Um, And so given that I understand the 1890s through 1930 as well as I do, then how do I take lessons from it? And I guess part of what I keep saying to myself is somehow Black and brown people survived the 1890s through 1930. But also what I'm then forced to contend with as I watch the way this country is determined to repeat those decades is some black and brown people did not survive the 1890s through 1930. And this country's brutality, therefore, is not new. In the midst of the worst violence of that earlier span of time, in the midst of all that, not only did you have artistic, um, you know, beauty being created, you also had all kinds of firsts in business and every other arena you can name. You had all kinds of firsts in the middle of all that violence. And I just have to hold on to that and remember that because what it means is that this country is doing what it has always done best. And in the middle of that, black and brown folk have always found ways to nurture each other and support each other. And when necessary, mourn and grieve each other and thereby support the people around them who are still left after we lose people. Like none of that is irrelevant. All of that is the lesson that I take. And the only thing I can do is make sure that this country's brutality does not get to define everything about my experience. And so I'm very aggressively taking, okay, how do I continue to hold myself to certain standards, even as I watch this country hold itself to the very lowest standards possible? How do I make sure that their evil and violence is not the thing that constantly has me responding? And to me, that's what homemade citizenship is about. That's what those strategies of perseverance is about. That's what looking through the lens of success is about. It's about how do I make sure that everything I do isn't simply a reaction, even as I don't ignore any of it, but how do I make space for something other than reaction? And to me, that is important work because if I do something that rejuvenates my spirit, which is I can't do it if I'm always reacting to the evil, right? But when I'm doing something that rejuvenates my spirit, then that also means that I have something to give to my community and the people I care about. And that is important to me. So whatever is going to allow me to hold on to my humanity, even as I look at the inhumanity of all these people in charge, when I can hold on to that, then that is a gift that I can give the people that I care about and the communities I care about all over right? Not just communities in my house. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so the question is, is crucial. And I think it's also a question that I ask constantly because I don't think necessarily that we get to certain places and then coast. I think that we're always recalibrating and thinking about, okay, how do I live up to my best ideals today? And so it's not like I get the answer to the question and then coast for the rest of my life. I'm always willing to recalibrate and think about, you know, what are the adjustments that I want to make? 
make that allow me to continue to operate in this world in a way that is faithful to me and mine and not just defined by everything outside. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I mean, I think that, you know, I know that your work is very near and dear to your heart. I also know that it's painful work. Yeah. Um, because it's a painful topic at the same time that it's joyous work, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I really just appreciate you sharing that with us. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners before we close out for today? No, that's really it. I mean, you went to the heart of all of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I think that your work is very inspiring and, I, and I'm really struck by how much it speaks to everything we're going through right now. And I'm, I, I want to encourage everyone to go out and buy it and read it and engage with it. We're going to link your website and your book to our podcast description. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your energy. Thank you for your scholarly and mentorship work, because we didn't get a chance to talk about that, but you are an amazing mentor behind the scenes to a lot of people. And I just want to say that out loud because I think that, you know, this work is about the scholarship, it's about the research, but it's also about how we engage with and treat people. And you are really a, a role model in that regard. And so thank you for being that role model. Thank and I you. just appreciate you having you on. I, I'm sorry I haven't been able to see you lately. So I'm hoping <laughs> that this pandemic can be over soon so we can be in the same place at some point. Exactly. And thank you. I mean, you're a model for me, too, in terms of the way that you move in the world and the way that you make sure that your scholarly contributions are not on the page alone. Right. Even with this podcast and just the the example that you give us all. And that is part of what I'm trying to do, too, is to make sure that I'm contributing in more than one realm. And that really is modeled by you. And so thank you so much. That's okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's really kind of you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.sightblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. Thank you.